Hello and welcome to the Science Shambles podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is an audio version of the video version that goes out live at 3pm British time every Sunday on our YouTube channel, a science Q&A, a different topic each week, always hosted by Robin Ince and Dr. Helen Chersky. Different guests each week. As such, bear in mind there might be a couple of moments that are more suited to the original visual format, particularly in the show and tells at the start. But that shouldn't hamper your enjoyment too much of this podcast version. And also, since it goes out live as well, everyone's on different broadband speeds, different microphones, different settings. So there might be a couple of little bits of audio dropout or echo or the random things that one encounters when doing something live over Zoom or Skype or whatever it is. You all know how finicky doing these video conferencing things can be by now. If you want to support the show, help us keep making it each week, keep making it free for everyone. You can go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and support us on there and get yourself various rewards and goodies and exclusives for doing so as well. And our annual Christmas shows, Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People, not taking place as usual in a run of a week or two weeks of live shows like we do every December. But this year we are doing a one-off 24-hour show on December 12th. As always, all the profits will go to charity, so you can go to crowdfund.co.uk slash nine lessons and donate there, and there's rewards and stuff for doing so as well. And you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons to get some tickets to come along and see it live. There's going to be a small number of socially distanced tickets available to watch certain blocks of the 24 hours live and that's also where we'll be posting any news and uh, guest lineups and all that sort of stuff already confirmed to appear uh robin is hosting for the entire 24 hours and there'll be helen chesky and beck hill and josie long and chris hadfield and brian cox and helen sharman and sharon d clark and mark watson and tanita tickram and sophie ellis bexter and jim al and chris jackson and loads 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 more so go to cosmicchannels.com slash nine lessons to check that out and now, here is this week's episode of the Science Shambles Sunday Q&A show. Hope you enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Sunday Science Q&A. Uh, here pretty much every Sunday. When we're not here, it's because we're doing something else on a Sunday, which will also probably be broadcast, such as uh, the Cheltenham Science Festival show that we did, which is still somewhere up online as well. If you go to Cosmic Shambles, you'll find it. And also Ocean Shambles, which was the big well it almost was the first 24-hour show we did I think we certainly did considerably longer than we would have done if Helen and I had been at the Albert Hall and uh, that's still up there as well with uh, with Chris Hadfield and Steve Baxter and so many other guests also talking about the nature of the oceans which gives me a chance to very quickly tell you uh, about the fact that if you don't know already on the 12th of December we are doing a 24-hour show starting obviously on the 12th of December at midnight midday midday change that change that you missed the first 12 hours if you do that hang on does midnight does that mean it's the beginning of the day no you're 12 hours early I, look, I don't really do clocks it's been a very difficult day for a lot of us with that so anyway uh sonic midday on the 12th of december uh we're going to be doing a 24-hour science variety music show all the kind of shows that we would normally be doing at uh, the hammersmith polo in king's place because we can't really properly do them this year we're putting them online it's a live show i'll be presenting the whole thing live helen will be there we also have helen sharman's going to be there and chris hadfield's going to be there and brian cox is going to be there and sophie ellis bexter's going to be there and justin bell is going to be there we've announced the first first 50 acts we reckon we're up to 109 I think that every show we've ever done has an overrun. It's going to be interesting to have an overrun on a 24-hour show. But go to CosmicShambles.com, you'll find out more about that. We also have a new series that is coming up, uh, which is going to be called An Uncanny Hour, which is going to be looking at all manner of things, surrealist artists and horror movies and strange plays and stories uh, and Hawkwind in the 1970s and UFO artefacts. And we've got guests including Stuart Lee and Alan Moore and Charlie Higson and Caroline Linton uh, and Caroline Larrington. And uh, we have, in fact, there's, there's an enormous number of guests on that. Reese Shearsmith is on the first one as well. Um, Jeremy Dyson and uh, Joanna Neary, amongst others. That's all going to be about the fantastic horror portmanteau classic Dead of Night. And that is the first time that we're doing a totally exclusive for Patreon subscribers show. So Cosmic Shambles Network, uh, subscribe to our Patreon. And this is a new series that we're doing and, uh, and you will get that. 
And uh, what else do I need to tell you? Uh, oh, next week's uh, Science Shambles. Let me just check on that. Uh, oh, there's a new podcast out, by the way, with Tim Peake as well about his new book. And next uh, Sunday's show is going to be Astronomy. And that's with uh, Dr. Stuart Clark and Dr. Sheila Kanani. And that will be fantastic. So if you want to ask questions about the night sky. And if you've seen Stuart's most recent book, which is a very interesting book about our relationship with the night sky and our changing relationship as uh, civilization has changed as well. Have a quick look at that as well, because that might give you some idea for some of the things you might want to know as well so um, from four o'clock today start sending us questions about the night sky but until then you can send us questions uh, about predominantly the ocean yeah because last week we were doing a kind of show about neuroscience and mental health and Helen didn't have as many opportunities to talk as normal so to make up for that Today, it's the oceans. So every question is a question for Helen and also our guest today, who are Dr. John Copley, who's Associate Professor in Ocean Exploration at the University of Southampton. Southampton. And, and because the University of Southampton is such a hot seabed as well, we have Dr. Stephanie Henson, who's Honorary Associate Professor, National Oceanography Centre at the University of Southampton. And Helen Chersky is no longer at the University of Southampton, but she was, so she's pulled in some favours for this one. Hello, Helen, first of all. You've got a show and tell that you started building up last week we are waiting for this this is epic david lean show and tell isn't it well Well, it it, it didn't i mean uh, spoilers first it didn't work however it's still (laughs) quite interesting and i i i so i was i really want and let me tell you i everything in my kitchen is pink because of this john and steph just from that will already know what i've been trying to do um so i'm interested in how can i stop you actually because you said this thing you gave us a tip just because you're mentioning pink when you were talking about going on uh um, when you're doing the kind of the long voyages and the long exploration things, you had a way, didn't you, of uh, making sure that people didn't nick your stuff. What was that way? Oh, I painted everything with pink nail varnish, my tools. I paint my tools, drivers and my spanners when I go to sea with pink nail varnish because the spanners like everywhere. And the problem is you need, when you've got a piece of kit, you need the right spanner at the right time. And, and if the spanner's kind of around, people, well, in a well-meaning way, they'll go, oh, I just need a spanner. And they take your spanner and they always take the one you want. And it's not really their fault. And everyone want, It's not that I don't want to lend my spanners out. I just want them to come back. So, yeah, I paint all my spanners with, with pink nail varnish. And actually, it's not just pink. I paint different sets in different colours. And it actually genuinely helps at sea as well, because when you're on the back deck of a ship and everything's moving up and down like this, and you need to know which two things to plug together, and they all look the same, if you paint the matching ends, nail varnish is basically just cheap enamel paint. And it just makes everything easier. So, yeah, I was never into pink nail varnish for myself. I had to go to all these like shops that I would never go to and find these lurid colours of nail varnish, but it's really useful. Anyway, um, so I'm interested in how stuff moves around the ocean. And I thought that I would try to recreate a thing that Cosmic Shambles people might have seen because it was one of my pictures. Oh, oh, that. One of my pictures for the the ocean. Um, I'm going to hold this right up because technology to technology is clearly the right way to do it. It's a kind of pink hedgehog. So what you can't really what what is in there is um, it's it's a lump of ice. The center of it is bright pink and it's got these little like sticky things coming out of it and I made that by accident uh, on a ship in 2012 uh, someone was using what is known as what is called rhodamine dye uh, it's very bright pink it's very useful as an ocean tracer because it's it's non-toxic but if you put it in the water you can kind of see where it goes so you can see what the water's doing so they had some of this I thought I'm, I want to do an ice demo I'm going to freeze some of this to make a pink ice cube and instead of a pink ice cube I got this pink hedgehog and the reason for it is that um well, let me show you. So I tried to recreate it, first of all. So I basically spent, I, I found some rhodamine online. You can kind of see actually my, I haven't got, finger, but you can see the bits of pink that are left over. That's from four days ago. Um, so, so here is my current pink ice cube. And you will see that there is no hedgehog. It is just frozen all the way through, which is very disappointing. Um, but let me tell you why the original pink hedgehog was there. It was there because in the ocean, when seawater freezes, it doesn't all freeze um, as seawater. It doesn't doesn't stay the same. Basically, what happens is the water bits freeze and the salt gets squeezed out. So you get these kind of little tubes where salt water is getting more and more concentrated, being pushed out and then kind of pure water ice is forming from the top. And so sea ice always has these little channels and things that are full of brine. And what happened, the reason my pink hedgehog formed was that the outsides froze and they froze as pure water and they pushed all the pink dye and the salt into the middle. 
and those little tubules were the leftover bits of brine to let it get out. And, and that's really important in the ocean because it means you make one bit of ocean water just underneath the sea ice saltier than everything else. And then it sinks and then it moves. And that's really important. Anyway, so I wanted to recreate that. Um, I had salty water. I had pink food dye everywhere. I've still got a couple of experiments in the freezer that haven't frozen yet. So I'm completely failing with this experiment. So one thing that I've learned is how lucky I was the first time, never intended it to happen. The second thing, and actually the more important point, is that rhodamine gets everywhere. And this is the reason it's useful in the ocean, that you can put a patch of it in ocean water and um, you can watch it spread out. You can use it as a marker for where the water's gone. And actually, one of the things in oceanography we're most concerned about is where water goes and how it mixes. And so this bright pink rhodamine, which does get broken down by sunlight after a bit, um, is this amazing? Like when you dye a patch of the ocean this colour, it really looks a bit odd. And I have seen it done, um, but it's really useful. So anyway, so you're hoping to be the great demonstration of brine rejection. Look at this. It's everywhere. And, and instead, um, I'm just going to tell you how useful rhodamine is for oceanographers. The nice thing is, though, you really are building up terms of your uh, eventually getting the part of being the advert for Iceland in terms of your different party foods, the strange floating limes and the sinking kiwi fruit, the pink ice, all of those things. Each thing is people can have more Helen Chersky themed based birthday well, this parties. Is what, you know, everyone's supposed to be developing a, you know, a sort of skill during, skill during lockdown. Mine is, mine is going to be the weirdest parties ever. Like it's going to be the science cocktail party to end all science cocktail parties. Clearly that's the aim here. Am I giving away stuff for Christmas? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, again, yeah, on the 12th of December, we can continue those experiments, you know, live on stage. And because uh, it would be nothing better than having a lot of kind of lurid and strange cocktails starting from midday on the 12th of December and seeing what state I'm in by uh, midday on the 13th. It's only going to help, I reckon. Yeah. I, I see that as an oceanography experiment, an experiment in chemistry and an experiment in neuroscience and psychology. It's crossing a lot of different boundaries. Um, Stephanie, what is your show and tell today? Yeah, thank you, Robin. So I have got this. Now, at the bottom of this sample jar is a load of plankton poo. Now, what is it doing there, you're going to ask? This is collected from about 3,000 metres down in the North Atlantic. And yes, it's a pile of faeces. So why are we collecting this and why is it important? Well, we have to go back up to the surface of the ocean to answer that question. And up at the surface of the ocean, um, there's lots of tiny plants called phytoplankton, which are everywhere in the ocean. They're microscopic, so you can't see them in the naked eye, but they're really important. They actually produce about half of the oxygen in the air that we breathe, and they take up lots of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere as well. So actually, atmospheric carbon dioxide levels would be about 50% higher than they already are if it wasn't for phytoplankton. Now, the little uh, plants uh, get eaten by little animals called zooplankton, um, there's one actually behind Helen's head in the photograph there. And the zooplankton, um, are like every animal, once they eat, they have to poo. And that poo is heavy and it's full of carbon and it sinks down through the ocean. Now, the deeper into the ocean those poos can get, the more chance that that carbon is stored away on long timescales, which means it's keeping CO2 out of our atmosphere. It helps regulate our climate. And so this is called the biological carbon pump. Um, and we put uh, sediment traps, basically giant funnels, um, out at the bottom of the ocean and we collect the poos that fall down there and we can tell how much organic carbon is being stored in the ocean. So Helen and Robin, I've got a question for you. Okay, this is probably be easy for Helen. Maybe I'll make Robin answer it. Okay, this, this is a sample from July in the Atlantic and this is one from January and hopefully you can see that there's far less in the sample jar in January than there was in July. So is there any guesses for why that might be the case? No. No, <laughs> Helen. Uh, fewer things are living and growing in January, is that it? So there's less less poo going down. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, it's just like the plants, in your, plants in your garden. Phytoplankton being plants, they need light to grow. And so in the winter, it all just kind of gets a bit senescent and dies off. And then in spring, the light comes back, everything starts blooming again, everything starts growing. And where there's more food, there's more eating going on. And when there's more eating, there's more poo. And it's as simple as that. <laughs> what is brilliant about that is that what the, the picture, it paints this beautiful picture of the, the deep ocean being like the way we tell how long the days are. Yeah. And the way you tell at the bottom of the deep ocean is how much poo is raining down on you. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the good news is the first question we've got today is about poo as well. So this oh. might. Uh, um, John, 
who knows whether yours is going to be, you know, fecal, whether it's going to be some glamorous ice-based cocktail. Let's see. What is your show and tell? <laughs> okay, my yeah. show is, if I can get this up to the camera, is this, if you can see that there. That is a shrimp that lives at uh, Undersea Hot Springs, uh, uh, called hydrothermal vents. And that particular shrimp is a new species uh, that we found in 2010 and uh, got to describe and name and so on. And that one actually comes, uh, lives at hydrothermal vents that are five kilometers down in the Cayman Trough uh, in the Caribbean Sea. And uh, it's a bit of a shame. Uh, people often say, oh, yeah, and it's white because it lives in the deep ocean and it's dark down there and things don't have colours. But actually, in life, uh, it's actually quite colourful. It's sort of got orangey, orangey tint to it. It's white because of how we've had to preserve it to then put it in a resin block and so on. But these scurry around, these hot springs on the ocean floor, in their millions. Uh, and they feed on bacteria that grow on their gills and their mouth parts. And they, they scrape them off and eat them. As adults, okay, they, the bacteria are nourished by this mineral-rich hot fluid gushing out of the ocean floor at these hot springs. But that's just only one part of this amazing animal's life cycle. Uh, because these hot springs are dotted around the ocean floor uh, like little islands. And they don't last forever, uh, any one set of springs. So the animals have to have some way of getting from set of hot springs to hot, hot spring. Island hopping, if you like, in, in the deep ocean. Uh, and... How they do that is a bit of a mystery that we're still investigating. They have a larval stage that drifts in ocean currents, and there are deep ocean currents, and it's incredibly successful. We know that uh, you know two populations of this kind of shrimp 5,000 kilometres apart in the deep North Atlantic are connected genetically. You know, larvae are arriving from another site 5,000 kilometres away uh, to one site, which is phenomenal. So they are getting about in the motion of the ocean, uh, and we're trying to understand, you know, how, how they do that. And what does that mean for, you know, when we have an impact in one part of the ocean, how is it transmitted to other parts of the ocean potentially? Well, that's good because you did, in the end, there was a kind of pink link there, which I was the John Waters film, Pink Flamingos. Uh, and of course, eventually his film Hairspray, which was turned into a musical with a great song about the motion from the ocean. So there, it, somewhere there is a kind of a, a, a connection between all of those things. I won't tell you what the connection to John Waters and the plankton poo was you were showing. But again, that refers to uh, the film Pink Flamingos. I'm going to do a quick show and tell, which is this T-shirt. I don't know if you can see uh, what the T-shirt says. Basically says no music on, uh, on a dead planet. And uh, it's uh, from uh, a, a group of uh, artists, in particular musicians, um, currently uh, doing some campaigning and working uh, with things like Extinction Rebellion and also looking at uh, kind of climate science uh, and climate change activism. So I just thought I'd mention that T-shirt, go and look up that phrase and you will find out much more about what they are doing. Uh, so let's get straight on with our, I, I promise and, and remind you that if you do want to send a, a question in, you can either tweet us with a question um, or you can just place it somewhere. There is some kind of chat thing somewhere on your screen and you can leave it there and Trent will make sure that I have uh, have asked that question. Uh, first question is from Mike White. Uh, has anyone found whale coprolites? I suspect fossil whale poo is difficult to find, but presumably identifying it is somewhat easier once found. Now, Helen, I'm going to throw that one straight to you. I suspect that poo might be more Stephanie's thing. I can tell you a little bit about one type. So my instinctive reaction is that the ocean is quite good at eating stuff so there probably isn't much left over however there is something that sperm that is produced in the gut of a sperm whale very specifically and that's ambergris and it is the stuff that people one of the things one of the reasons people used to hunt for sperm whales because it was very it was good as a perfume fixer uh, people could it, actually some kings ate it in their food I, apparently some king had eggs and ambergris as a thing anyway apparently it's very it's a bit weird it sounds very odd anyway um but this is produced by the uh, bile, something somewhere where the bile is in a, in a sperm whale. And I think and it, so it, some of it will pass out of the end of the whale. And unlike most whale poo, which goes up, this goes down. And so I think they have found fossil ambergris. I'm not aware of fossil poo, but Stephanie might know more than me. Well, you know, whales uh, are bigger than zooplankton. Yeah, yeah. So whales um, feed quite deep down in the ocean. They seem to come up to the surface to poop. For whatever reason, um, they seem to enjoy pooing at the surface. And you'll see sometimes if you're out on a ship and you're, you're down in the Southern Ocean in particular, you can end up with quite vast slicks of whale poo um, on the surface. Um, very, very smelly and unpleasant. Um, but as Helen said, things in the ocean tend to get eaten. And whale poo is full of nutrients like um, nitrates and iron, 
all of which are short in short supply in the Southern Ocean. And so it just tends to get recycled up near the surface of the ocean. I doubt much of it is sinking down to the bottom. Also, whale poo is basically a liquid. It's not actual clumps of poo. Um, so uh, I could only imagine the size of what, if a whale poo was solid, how big that would be, probably sink ships. Um, but uh, because it's quite liquidy and it's full of nutrition, it doesn't get down to the bottom of the ocean. I don't think there's ever been a case of fossilised whale poo being found. Brilliant. So there we are, Mike. You were correct. It is very, very tricky. Now, um, Eileen, I'm going to start. I'm going to throw this question to you, John. Uh, it's, an, it's an interesting. I don't know if I remember correctly, but I think a couple of weeks ago you mentioned scientists use radiation residues from from World War II nuclear bombs to study how and how fast things move through the oceans. I would like to learn more about that. It's quite a specific question. So let's find out, because uh, and also it has the, the proviso of, I, I don't know if anyone did actually say this. Um, I did. You definitely I, did, I, I right. Have it, yeah. <laughs> right, let's just, let's just wait on John for a moment before. Okay, uh, Helen, I'm over, no, over to Helen. <laughs> I'm a biologist, so uh, I'll pass on that one. Uh, okay, so, well, there is um, something, I mean, I am not recommending this as a reason for carrying out nuclear tests. However, in the 50s, it was actually after the Second World War, uh, America and Russia and the UK did carry out a lot of nuclear weapons tests uh, and this did some it left a signal and the place it left a signal is in the isotopes of some elements so things like tritium and carbon uh, there's you know any most well an atom depends on the number of protons in its nucleus you can add a few more neutrons and it's the same type of atom but it's a slightly different form of it so it's still carbon it's just a slightly different form and the ratios of those um those isotopes those forms of carbon depend a little bit on what's going on but they reflect the environment quite often so for example if there's lots of um if you're measuring how much carbon is taken up somewhere you, those ratios are quite useful they tell you because sometimes biology might take up more or less of particular ratios however um the bit that's relevant for this is that um there are parts of the ocean where that are up near the surface and they are exchanging gases with the atmosphere so basically whatever is in the atmosphere is going to what's going in and out of the ocean at that point more or less now if that water then gets carried down into the ocean it's then away from the surface it's basically carrying that that sort of chemical signature and it just goes with it the ocean doesn't mix up very easily on the very large scales so this little package just carried with it so what i was talking about when when we mentioned that was um north atlantic deep water which is formed uh, up near greenland and it's 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 actually it starts with that brine rejection i was just talking about you cold salty water it's up near the surface and it gets carried down into the ocean and then it slithers along the bottom the ocean floor and what you can see is that you can look at this ratio of isotopes of types of carbon and over here far away it's just kind of whatever the atmosphere is doing and suddenly it spikes up and that is the front that's the so you can tell in the 1950s some water over here got carried down and got carried along and it's labeled and so you can actually see in the ocean where it's got to and it's moving very slowly it's kind of a centimeter per day meter i think it's maybe a centimeter per second it's not very much anyway it's really slow um so it's not got very far across the atlantic but you can actually see you can measure the water packet and you can see where it's been because of this isotope signature um because it's reflecting this thing that humans put into the atmosphere so bomb carbon is actually really useful for all kinds of things um, um, yeah and actually interestingly you can also track the uh, nuclear power um, plant accident. So Fukushima, um, when that um, exploded a little while ago, they were able to trace where those waters were going through the ocean really accurately using the, the radioactive isotopes. And they found that it spread quite quickly, much more quickly than they thought it was going to. Um, and so that signature from Fukushima is going to be around in the ocean for a long time. So we're going to be able to trace where the waters from that accident ended up. Ooh, it's probably dangerous. quite... It's probably quite important to say that it's not because it's radioactive and dangerous. No, no, it's the, yeah. it's it's the isotopes are, it's are different. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, and Eileen. I think... And you remembered correctly. correctly. Sorry, Helen. <laughs> No, no, that's it. Well, this, yes, so thank you, Arlene. And that was uh, also, I love those kind of scientific measurements where uh, go, it doesn't move very quickly. It's either a centimetre, a second or a day, one or the other. Uh, so, um, this is uh, now, John, two part question for you. Part one, have you seen my octopus teacher? 
<laughs> I haven't yet. No, I've heard about it from a lot of people, but I haven't had a chance to catch up with it yet. Right. So that's OK. That's the first part of Laura's question dealt with. Now, in some part, I'm going to go with it anyway, even though you haven't seen it, because I think it's an interesting. She says it seemed a missed opportunity to tell an interesting story about conservation and octopuses in favour of a kind of creepy manufactured love story. We'll find out about that. But what is it? I just wonder if you give us it because the octopus, you know, especially with books like Other Minds, etc., I think has really ignited people the fascination of something that seems so complex on so many different levels so i just wonder if you could you know how you well partly i think actually public perception of the octopus and our perception of the octopus in in, in the last few years how that's changed i think it has changed uh in part because of you know things that portray its behavior so we see them now as being curious and you know having almost like personalities and being able to interact uh, and that kind of thing um and yet they you know their body plan and so on is it seems so alien um, to us uh, so i think that's really made given us food for thought um and they are remarkable on so many levels i mean my favorite feature uh, of octopus uh, is the fact that they can edit their RNA in their cells, uh, which is a trick that other branches of life don't, as far as we're aware, aren't, aren't capable of doing. So, so normally we, we have the, the codes for the proteins that make the enzymes that make our cells work uh, stored in our DNA. And that code is read into uh, RNA, of course, which is kind of a copy that goes out into the cell and then gives the instructions for making those proteins. Um, and, you know, if you want to make a different protein, you have to have a different genetic code in your DNA. Uh, but what octopuses can do uh, is they can edit their RNA. They can make changes to the copy of the code from the library of the DNA, change it in certain ways, and therefore produce more, a wider range of proteins um, from it's kind of like the recipe is stored in the DNA and the octopus can you know make some modifications to the recipe like a chef can say okay actually I'm not, I'm not going to put thyme in I'm going to put oregano in this time and you know and that kind of thing and do variations on a theme uh, and that's that's remarkable and, and that gives them a kind of evolutionary flexibility uh, which is quite incredible uh, so having found that in cephalopods in the animals like octopuses and squid and so on the, the question is well that that's evolved there it's kind of interesting has it evolved else, elsewhere uh, and, and uh, there's a lot for us still still to learn, even on a molecular level, uh, about these animals. So they they really are incredible. Uh, there was an exceptionally controversial paper that came out a couple of years ago, and it did make it into the newspapers um, because they seem so weird, uh, which kind of suggested, I think, that octopus eggs might have come from space through panspermia or whatever. And um, let's just say it didn't cross my desk for peer review, yet somehow it did come out in a journal, but it caused quite a bit of consternation because we know about the evolutionary history of these animals. We compare their genetic code with their relatives and so on and trace their, their family tree way back and they did not arrive recently on a meteorite. Okay, <laughs> we can say that with certainty, yeah, even though sound, they seem so weird. <laughs> you sound like <laughs> the kind of cynic who may well dismiss the book Our Spaceship Moon. Anyway, the uh, which is a quite remarkable book from about 50 years ago, in which it turns out the moon's a spaceship. Uh, again, I think I wouldn't even say the jury's out on that. It seems that there's been a reasonable amount of research. Well, they sent a 12-man jury to go and check, didn't they? Yeah, I think that was... was. Now, you see, the trouble is that once you're uh, already bought by, oh, yeah, Spaceship Moon, you're also probably going to believe that 12 people never stood on the moon. as well. There's a lot of issues. It's that we won't open that can of worms. Instead, I'm going to ask. Now, this one is basically this could end the show because this could just go on for such a long time. This, So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask this to each of you, but don't just say everything because otherwise we will be here till five o'clock tomorrow. This is from Jonathan. He would like to know what are the real world benefits uh, that come from exploring the deep oceans? He's, he wants to say, make it very clear. He also loves curiosity for curiosity sake in no way is he saying this is a criticism he's very interested though to know what are the real world benefits so um stephanie can i start with you yeah so i would argue that a really huge benefit is the storage of carbon and heat by the ocean so we know of all of the man-made extra heat that we're generating through global warming about 93 percent of that is being stored in the deep ocean and of the extra carbon that we're producing through our human activities, about 25% of that is being stored in the ocean. So you can imagine that without that storage capacity, our climate would be completely out of control by now. So it's a really good mechanism by, way, by, by how the, the oceans manages to regulate the whole planet's climate. Um, and 
you know, plankton poo is part of that story, um, but there's much more to it than that. But I think we have to just be thankful to the oceans for storing. It's basically a bit of a, a, a bin, a waste bin for humanity's embarrassing <laughs> actions at the moment. Um, and it stores huge quantities of heat and carbon. So I would argue that's the that's the best reason to study it. John? Uh, there are many, many reasons we could be here for a while, so I will just pick one. And for me, it is that uh, the biodiversity of the deep ocean is a library of the ingenuity of nature. Uh, because I mean, like the octopus, we can find stuff down there that is not what we imagined how things work. There are different environments, different conditions to what we're familiar with up here on land. Uh, therefore, we see new adaptations, new innovations that have come from natural selection and nature. And we can then learn from those. Uh, if we want to benefit ourselves, we can kind of, you know, biomimetic sort of research. Uh, so I keep a kind of top 10 list of spin-offs from exploring life in the deep ocean. It's like that question, you know, what was the point of space exploration? It gave us non-stick pans or whatever. Um, what are the things in our everyday lives that have come from exploring the deep ocean? And they range from uh, more robust fiber optic cables for the internet based on the skeletons of glass deep sea sponges, uh, you know, better forms of body armor and so on from an amazing species of scaly foot snail that I was a co-author describing. Uh, through to, you know, the perpetual need to hunt for new ways to tackle antibiotic resistance. Uh, so it's this library of the ingenuity of nature. And like the great library uh, of Alexandria, which of course burnt down, you know, right now we are playing with matches in that library. We risk losing volumes on its shelves before we've had a chance to browse them. God, the library of Alexandria story is one of the great, every time I Every time I imagine what might have been there, what knowledge. I mean, we, we, there's so much knowledge that remained, but that we left behind for hundreds of years. But to actually think those books that were gone on so many subjects. Um, Helen, I, maybe that's all. Are, are there more I'm than like, two reasons? Yeah, Let's so just I, find out. That's, that, 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 is, that is needlessly poking a stick in a wasp's nest, Robin, because <laughs> we can take up the rest of the show if that is the challenge. Um, how, so I just wanted to build on what Stephanie said, because um, it's not just that uh, things go down into the ocean. We, when we say we live on a blue, it's really weird. People say, oh, yes, we live on a blue planet. But they don't actually, we haven't, we often don't make the leap to, we live on a planet that is driven by its ocean. It's not just that heat and carbon go down into it. It's that the ocean is moving heat around. It is moving nutrients around. It is stabilizing the planet. So if you want to, you know, the reason that we can turn away at night and um or you know a seasonal cycle where we get the nights get really really short and the temperature doesn't change that much i know everyone's about to start moaning about autumn but really the temperature is not changing that much when you consider how much less sunlight we're getting and the reason for that is that the ocean is acting like acting like a battery it takes heat in it holds on to it so when we go through a cold season then go back into summer we don't get real extremes of temperature um we are we are living in an ocean world where almost every feature we take for granted has come from the stabilizing effect of the ocean or the way it moves heat and nutrients around. It's an engine. It, it does what an engine does. It takes in heat energy and it converts it into movement. And that engine runs our world. We, just because we're a land-based species, we tend to underestimate that. So I think actually studying the ocean, and fine, we're all ocean scientists, we're biased. But if you want to understand the Earth system, the ocean is the bit you need to get at first because everything else sort of interacts with that. Um, but the ocean is the heart of, of everything that's going on. Have we convinced right. you yet? <laughs> oh, no, yeah, I'm, I'm totally convinced. Anyway. I've been doing this for enough weeks, and I've known you for long enough now, which if I wasn't convinced, you would have failed very dismally in terms of, I think, one of your prime motivations, and you you have not failed in that whatsoever. In fact, I'm gonna, I think for our 24-hour show, I'm just going to have you placed behind glass, and every time a connection doesn't work, I go, and Helen, come yeah. on back out and tell us more about the oceans. I, I don't think... I don't, I don't think we'd have trouble filling that 24 hours if we didn't have the 109 guests that have been booked as well. Um, we've got another question coming up from Sandra, who's age nine. I'm just going to mention before I ask Sandra's question, by the way, mention Patreon again. Uh, that uh, That is how we manage to make. We, we make between four and five shows a week. And, uh, and, and Trent and myself as well spend a surprising amount of time in the week as well, getting these kind of things all, all sorted. And if you are able to support us via Patreon, it is incredibly useful because uh, I obviously was meant to be on live tour for most of this year. Trent was doing loads of live events stuff like that it helps us and also the new show that we're doing the patreon only show and uncanny hour is we're trying to get more and more complex as well the 24-hour show is going to be pretty complex the new series 
to be doing is quite complex as well. And uh, so if you're able to support us for our Patreon, that's fantastic. We will still try and make as much stuff as possible, which is free to access. But due to the way that everything has changed as well, we are having to put some things uh, behind a wall. But Sandra's question, Sandra is age nine, and she would like to know, and I, th I would like to, if, I'm going to ask you if you can give a little bit more detail on this as well than her question alone, because it is a question about uh, big ocean mammals like whales and why not big ocean reptiles and i also think it would be an interesting thing john to say a little bit in case sandra doesn't know about the evolutionary story of the whale because i remember i probably was about 30 years old before i read steve jones is almost like a whale and what a revelation that was so yeah if you could just get a little bit of background on that so why okay why big mammals why not big reptiles because they have been big reptiles and the environment changed which meant it was kind of like starting over again with an empty space that species could radiate into uh, and there's a space where you can support large life forms uh, in an ocean ecosystem and that space is vacant and it's kind of like well who who gets there and colonizes that space if you like to fill it and after environmental changes it's like you know shaking the kaleidoscope you start to get a new, a new pattern and what we have now is is large large mammals um there are lots of factors in in why whales got big uh, in part, it's to do with the distribution of their food around the oceans, because if their food is, we have these amazing seasonal blooms of life at you know, higher latitudes around the equator, we don't get much variation from season to season. So if you've got to go you know, to the, but it's nice and warm at the equator, you know, other conditions are good. If you've got to migrate long distances because of where your food is, then you need a good fuel tank um, to kind of sustain you. And big body size uh, is, is advantageous in that way. Uh, but to me, the most incredible thing about whales, when, it, when we think of the really big ones like the blue whale, is not just their size, which is utterly phenomenal. I mean, a blue whale's, adult blue whale's body mass is about the equivalent of 2,000 people. So, I mean, that's a, that's a small village. That, that one animal is equivalent to a small village. But they grow at pretty much the same rate... Uh, <laughs> They grow to adult size in pretty much the same time we do. So, you know, their gestation before they're born, when a, you know, a, a whale is pregnant, yeah, probably up to about a year uh, for a blue whale. And then they're born at about three, three metric tons. Uh, and then by the time they're in their teens, they've reached that adult size. So they've reached the equivalent of 2,000 body sizes for us in the same time it takes us to grow to adult size. That is an incredible rate of growth. And they're big, not because their cells are big. Their cells are the same, pretty much the same size as, as our cells, any cells. It's not that they're made of big cells. What it means is they've got, a, you know, they're big because they've got a phenomenal number of cells making up their body, which means their rate of what we call cell division uh, is, is phenomenal. And every time a cell divides, things can go wrong because it has to copy all the DNA in the cell to make the new cell and, uh, as it divides. Uh, and they have very good ways of stopping mistakes in the copying of their DNA, protecting their DNA from, from damage during this incredible rate of growth that they have. And that actually can be really important for us because there are quite a lot of human diseases that involve chain, you know, damage to DNA and so on, this process going wrong. So although uh, they can be another place where we can get insights that might benefit us from studying um, this process. Uh, and it turns out that they have... Um, they have a bunch of enzymes that help protect their cells from low oxygen, uh, from, from oxygen damage uh, during this cell copying, which is to do with how cells um, um, reproduce. Uh, so then the question is, OK, which came first? Did they evolve the ability to dive deep and hold their breath for a long time, which gave them these enzymes that then protect their cells from the same kinds of damage they get if they grow really fast? Or did they learn, did they evolve to grow very fast, which gave them the ability to hold their breath for a long time and dive deep? And actually, when we look at the fossil record and the evolutionary history of whales, probably they evolved to dive deep uh, for food and so on. And then we're able to sort of co-opt those adaptations that enabled rapid growth to very large body size. Uh, so it's absolutely fascinating um, how they've got so big and all the steps that are involved in enabling that. I just find it fascinating, the idea that we always believe that it's a one journey, that it's from the, the ocean to the land and not 
you know that it wouldn't go back you don't and i, I yeah there's so many i, I would recommend uh, uh sandra the the yeah there's some some great books about whales out there and uh and i hope that was a starting point of uh, a lot more study for you as well and now here's another starting point for a lot more study this is uh for you stephanie this is from roseanne and she was looking at your twitter feed and uh she said that recently you said that your work was bio argo for carbon flux roseanne has no idea what this means but it sounds very cool what does it entail <laughs> Yeah, so um, we've started using uh, underwater ocean robots for some of our work. Now, um, traditionally, when we go and make observations of plankton poo and sinking carbon in the ocean, we take a ship out and we throw some stuff overboard, basically giant funnels which capture the sinking carbon, bring it back on board and analyse it. The problem with that is that we can only be out on a ship for a couple of weeks a year, um, it's very limited in both space and in time. Um, we certainly don't want to be out in the middle of the North Atlantic in you know, December. It's just be horrible. That's my job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when you're into bubbles, that's what you do. But the rest of us try and avoid that. Um, and so uh, we started using these underwater robots. And Argo floats are one um, type. Um, they're basically a, a, a big tube um, that's buoyancy regulated covered with sensors for things like temperature, oxygen, chlorophyll, all sorts of things. Um, and it floats around in the ocean at 2,000 metres depth. And every five to 10 days, it pops up, taking measurements all the way. And when it gets to the surface, it sends that data back to us. And so we get that back in real time. Another ocean robot, I actually, I'm so sad, I've got one of these sitting on my desk. So this is the other type that we use. It's a, a glider, an underwater glider. Looks a bit like a plane. Um, it's actually about um, one, one and a half metres long. This is a 3D printed model. Um, and yeah, and it glides down through the ocean to a thousand metres and back up and down and so on and so forth all the way along. And it can be out for months and months at a time. Um, again, covered with sensors. Um, and that allows us to figure out what's happening with the plankton poo and the biological carbon pump through whole seasons. Instead of just these point measurements when we're able to get a ship to go out, we're now building up long-term um, observations, which is really helping us figure out how it all actually works. Brilliant. I hope, Roseanne, that that, that was uh, answered. I, I think it did. It's uh, very, a very wonderfully uh, a specific question, but then very enlightening answer. And uh, um, now this question from TJ, who this is a question for all of you. Um, did you ever watch SeaQuest? Okay, that's that done. And, I did. Uh, oh, John did. Good, John, because I was going to give you the next because uh, TJ wanted to know, uh, and this this is interesting because th this is about dolphin to human translation, and and as some people may well know about some of the work that that John C. Lilly was doing in the nineteen sixties, and which then led to a, a Mike Hodges film called Day of the Dolphin with George C. Scott, which is not shown enough, which is about uh, a, a, a dolphin that. that actually i think as far as i remember speaks english but that idea of being able to because i think carl sagan once said you know we talk about the idea of trying to talk to extraterrestrials and we can't even communicate with the most intelligent animals the uh um, non-human species on on our own planet so so john what hopes would you have of, of being able to have a sense of a proper real sense of communication between uh dolphins and humans hugely challenging so uh, the link to sequest is in that in that sci-fi tv series uh they had a dolphin that, that whose speech if you like could be translated um through the magic of technology uh but I, it's hugely challenging because you know how do you have common frames of reference and so on so uh, interestingly I've, I've just come across a really fascinating research collaboration between people interested in marine mammal communication and researchers at seti um, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, because SETI researchers are like, well, how could we tell if we were actually, you know, seeing a signal um, without establishing common basis of reference and so on? So they've applied something called information theory to look at the complexity of information encoded in a communication to say, does it come from something that's potentially intelligent, or you know, how do we define intelligent is another question. But they've applied it to you know, humpback whale song and so on, and shown that it, 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 there are some rules that we can define if we go to our non-human. Um, you know, uh, species we share the planet with that are communicating in a sophisticated way like this. So there are probably tools for detecting whether a form of communication has got some intelligence behind it, but then to translate it and say, well, what is it actually saying? No, I mean, how, you know, you have to have some common 
frame of reference. Of course, Carl Sagan gets into this a lot in contact and, you know, and, and Seti kind of talk about, you know, this hydrogen window in emissions and it's the simplest and the most abundant thing in the universe. So anyone with technology should know about this. But I keep thinking, well, hang on a minute. We, we you know, we have whole, whole successful cultures in history that have had technology, but didn't have a sort of reductionist science that would have given them that insight, known what hydrogen was, known to look for this thing. And, you know, your, your basic building blocks for then a common frame of reference to try and translate anything uh, are hugely challenging and absolutely true for something that lives in the ocean. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's existence that it experiences is so different from ours uh, in every way, physically. Uh, so, what, you know, what would we, we could look at some commonalities, if you like, in the challenges of life that we know all species go through and um, the purposes we see communication used for in nature, you know, attracting a mate, messages to family groups, you know, to coordinate behavior, those sorts of things. And we might make some inferences and from that start to try and piece these things together. And, and people are doing that a little bit with with cetaceans, with, with you know, the marine mammals. Uh, there was some research published very recently about uh, it was blue whale song showing that they shift their time of singing um, from daytime towards nighttime when they're about to start migration. So actually that itself is then a message when they are singing and it's a way of coordinating over large distances so that, you know, kind of migration happens. So I think there, you know, there's some progress, but we're a long way off what was in Sequest. But there's well, also a lot, of, oh, sorry, there's a lot of arrogance in that, in in a way. I'm not accusing the questioner of this, but there's this kind of arrogance that it only counts if it if we can if it if we can if it communicates in our way. Like there's this assumption that it only it's only actually intelligent life if it's something that talks like us, and and really we need to, like John said, there it doesn't. There are plenty of ways where interesting and intelligent civil you know societies, communities, whatever could exist, and they just don't. They just don't think like us, but we can't judge them as less intelligent or less in some way or not interesting just because they're not kind of what we saw in sci-fi films in the 70s. And I think there's this real danger with like human, the human mind is so desperate to go, is it like us or is it something else? And if it's, it's not, not it, everything has to be one of those two categories. And the idea that it's just a thing that's like that, you know, everyone's uncomfortable with that and I think we have to open out a bit more and just be a bit more accepting of that you know everything doesn't have to be like us to be counted as important well I mean that if we look at uh, amongst different humans it, you know with it, it's still you you look at the change understanding of cultures which were entirely dismissed and it's only in this century that we're getting, you know, think of the indigenous people of Australia and things. Like it, yeah, it's remarkable. I, I was thinking of uh, there's an episode of Monkey Cage that we did recently with um, uh, Jane Goodall and Kat Hobater, and that was fascinating. You know, we're just beginning, it seems, to begin to get an understanding of the complexity of the language that chimpanzees have. And, and, and as, as you were saying, John, you know, the difference being though we have a very similar environment, so the the, the necessities and the communicate, etc. But such an interesting area um, to deal with. Uh, this is Helen. I'm going to throw this. This one to you, which is uh, with the problems of uh, climate change. I've lost the question, so I'm going to try and get it right. If ice is melting and temperatures are rising, Ian wonders, would putting a giant ice cube in the sea work? So what okay. would, now that is an interesting thing where the idea of just dropping a load of ice in, what are the ramifications? So question one is where does your ice come from? And uh, if it's ice that came from a glacier somewhere on earth that's one thing if it just arrived from outer space which is the way we think quite a lot of our water arrived that's a slightly different thing so let's for this for the for the purposes of this let's assume that it's fresh water frozen something that came from somewhere that isn't anywhere near the ocean it's not you're not taking water out of the ocean so first of all if you put extra water in the ocean that's extra water so sea level will go up a bit as a result um and it'll be a bit fresher and that'll change things locally a bit um if if you do that with a lot of water you could actually change the ocean circulation a bit because if you dump a load of fresh water at the surface you you so the ocean engine is driven by buoyancy and fresh water has a very different buoyancy to everything else so if you did it with a lot with a really big ice cube there's a risk of messing quite a lot of things up actually um so then would it cool things down that's the next question um and again, that depends on where it came from. It might, it won't help you with sea level rise. It will actually increase sea level rise because you've put more water in and it will take up 
when it melts, whatever, however much sea level rises when you put it in, the sea level will stay that high when it's melted because that's how ice works. So it won't help you with sea level rise. It might cool things down locally, but I don't, in practice, that doesn't work unless the ice comes from somewhere else completely. Um, so, so basically the answer is no, but I'm trying to find somewhere in the question. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's an interesting question, but I think no, because it's not just about the cold. It also doesn't solve the ocean acidification problem that we've got because we put carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And as Steph said, a lot of that's ended up in the ocean. So there's a lot of other problems it doesn't solve and it does create a few new ones. So generally, I think it's a bad idea. And that's even if it came from outside the, you know, somewhere else in the solar system. Well, I think that almost goes goes back. I, 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 uh, there was was it Simon Jenkins some years ago wrote an article about climate change where he talked about monitoring the ice in his gin and tonic, and how by monitoring that he'd realised that actually there really wasn't an issue if a large amount of ice melted. Um, and that is why sometimes people need to learn science before writing columns. <laughs> Uh, Terence Barton would, uh, he's very good, can I just say, on Norman Church architecture, though. He's great on that. And uh, he's one of those annoying, you know, those annoying journalists that one day you pick up one of the columns, you go, hmm, and the next day you go, oh, and it's, yeah, very, very hard to get through line there. Terence Barton has uh, a question, which, which is actually, I think, really, for all the number one environmental message I can remember is seeing endless pictures of penguins and turtles with six pack or four pack rings wrapped around their necks. I feel like that image was so powerful that we've got rid of that sort of packaging now, haven't we? But there's not really that powerful image for the current plastic pollution. So his question is, what do you think? What are the images that will cut through that people will feel that this, you know, maybe will also change all of those industries that are using the and, and ourselves, the, the, the packaging, which is such a, a, an issue? Um, Stephanie, should I start with you? Yeah. So, I mean, there have been some um, images lately um, of, you know, birds with plastic bags wrapped around their, their heads. Um, there's been images when they've um, done autopsies on whales that have stranded, for example, they found their stomachs just stuffed full of bits of plastic. And although, you know, we think we've changed our habits, actually, um, you know, we still have, we can still buy four cans of beer with the plastic rings on there. It's a different type of plastic, which is a bit more biodegradable, but it's still a form of plastic. So um, I don't think we're getting there in the battle against plastic just yet. But I think the important point that we, I hope people are starting to realise now is that each of us can actually make a difference. So we can say no to the plastic straws when we go out to eat. We can, when we go to the supermarket, we can make sure we take our own you know, cloth bags with us. Um, when we go shopping, we can try and avoid things that are pre-wrapped in plastic and just fill a, a cloth bag or whatever with our, our apples, our fruit. So I think that message, I hope, is starting to get across now that it's not something that's just out there, you know, nothing we can do about it. It's happening on the other side of the world. We don't even have penguins in England, um, but people are starting to clock. We all have a part to play. So I think that's an important message that programmes like Blue Planet, for example, got across really well. Yes, yeah, generally it is. isn't it? says something, then people then start to all, move. Yeah, exactly. We all act on it then when he says it. So, <laughs> John, is is there an, an an image or a series of images that you you think would would help bring this? Because because that's the thing, isn't it? Taking a big story and finding something that can give a, a sense of that story, sometimes in a single image. Yeah, and I think we have seen a few that are starting to do it, uh, as Steph has mentioned. So uh, in Blue Planet 2, there was the albatross, the dead albatross, and looking in its gut and finding plastic waste in there. Uh, there's Liz Bonin's uh, amazing documentary about the problems of plastic waste and just seeing the plastic in rivers in some parts of the world. And we are a part of that problem as well because we export our waste. OK, so, um, you know, that is, is a shocking, powerful image. Uh, there are others as well. And, and I mean, you mentioned there, you know, we don't have penguins in the UK. So what, what we did care about seeing these problems with penguins and so on. Um, you know, we now know there are plastics in the guts of crustaceans at the bottom of the deepest ocean trenches. And now whether an image of that or whether people say, well, who cares about what's at the bottom of the deep ocean trenches or whether people think, my goodness, it, it's even got there. Um, you know, that can also be provocative. Um, and yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> 
yeah, I, th I think we are seeing an increased awareness um, through these sorts of things. But of course, the problems are are huge and structural as well. You know, our plastics industry is is part and parcel tied up with our hydrocarbons industry and hydrocarbon dependence as well. Uh, and and yet, when we make a personal choice, we are expressing what we care about. That's the important thing. Uh, that then you know our representatives should take note of that. And our other personal choice that we can make, of course, uh, is who we vote for. And I'm not telling anyone who to vote for, but if you care passionately about something, then you must choose a representative who represents your concern and care about that genuinely. Uh, and I think that is the powerful message that our choices do send to people. Thank you, John. Helen? Um, yeah, so I think there's an uh, there's a concept and it can be expressed in lots of different ways. And it deals, one half of it deals with climate, one half of it deals with things like plastic. And the climate one is that energy flows through the Earth system. It comes from the sun, it's radiated into space. Carbon dioxide is slowing down the flow out and basically it's like bugging up the plug hole. The amount of energy in our engine is going up. So that that's what climate change is. Um, the plastics thing comes from the message, I think, that will make a difference here. The big picture we need to have to fix the problem is that we have a planet that's got a certain number of atoms on it. And more or less, those are the atoms we've got. That's it. And if you look at nature, which has successfully knocked around for a few billion years, Nature recycles everything. Basically, everything is made out of poo. It's not necessarily literal poo from a zooplankton, but it's made out of weight, the waste of what went before. That is how Earth functions. It's basically a rule of living on a planet. You need to make everything from the waste of what went before. And the problem with plastic is that it kind of siphons material. It siphons atoms out of that system. If you can't recycle your plastic, all you're doing is just accumulating plastic. And it's, it's not a form that can be made into other stuff. It's, it's breaking the rule of the waste. And so... It's that pile of plastic that's an issue because it's not going away because nothing else wants it, basically. The Earth system doesn't know what to do with it. It just sits there and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And and I think, in a way, it's that concept because you have to start from, if you want to fix this problem, like, yes, there's absolutely personal choice matters. But the, the way to think about it structurally is it's not to start with, I want to make this thing. It's how do I make the thing I want out of the waste of what has gone before? Because that's the way Earth works. And if you get that bit right, then everything is made out of poo and it's fine because the poo just goes round and round and round. And so I, I think uh, pictures definitely help. And, and, you know, the pictures that would aid this are kind of the plastic just building up. But really, it's the concept. These are the rules of Earth. Energy flows through, stuff goes round and round. And if you break those rules, you can't sustain life on a planet. And at the moment, the plastic is breaking one of those rules in a really big way. And then, you know, that... It's only with that framework that you can really think about how to fix that. Thank you, Helen. The um, we have a couple of uh, live chat questions which I get to quickly, which is uh, uh, one for you, John. This is just about the octopus before when you were talking about RNA manipulation, and uh, someone would like to know: is this instinctual or a conscious undertaking? So, how does the uh, RNA? Is there any? Is, is it a, a reaction to the environment without conscious? Uh, <laughs> Uh, how, how would we tell? <laughs> you know, let's let's not prejudge our, our, our cephalopods. Um, but no, I mean, it, it's an adaptation. These are these are mechanisms um, that have evolved, um, I think, rather than being any any conscious choice. But, uh, you know, uh, I don't have any particular insights into inside the mind of an octopus. Yeah, that's the, again, the, that's what we were dealing with the dolphin, the octopus, with all of these different things as well. Um, Helen, this one's for you because it's about bubbles. Is there a depth where the pressure is so great bubbles can't exist? I think we're being specifically terrestrial there. Uh, yes. So bubbles do shrink, shrink, sort of, with pressure. So if you ask someone who doesn't deal in the ocean, they'll say that as bubbles go down in the ocean, they get smaller because they're squashed. In practice, the really small, small ones don't because they've got protective little cages that basically stop them being squashed any further. Um, and what seems to happen, I think, and this is rather, you know, relatively new is that they they collapse very suddenly so they stop shrinking they just kind of collapse and the gas disappears very quickly and they stop being a bubble um you can get bubbles from uh methane seep so methane um becomes a solid if you put it under enough pressure and it's cold enough so there are places under the ocean with frozen methane that can't be a bubble and it's only when that region uh gets either warmer or the pressure is released that the methane can become a bubble and it sort of depends on things that depend but it's around 50 to 100 meters maybe around 200 depend depends a bit on where you are so that those are probably the deepest bubbles you get in practice however um there's always an exception but in general you don't find bubbles very deep down 
Thank you very much. Thank you you for your question, Fran. Uh, This is, uh, right, this is from Paul. Um, Stephanie, I'll start with you on this. Uh, He says, I have an ocean question that's bugged me for years. Namely, do waves come in groups? They appear to, but is this true? And if so, what causes this? Uh, Kind of. Groups. So um, all waves in the ocean are formed by wind blowing across the surface of the water. Um, and the, there's various factors which determine how fast those waves then propagate through the ocean. Um, but anything that's formed at, at the same time with a similar speed, they do tend to travel together. Um, they, you, you don't really see them as groups until, of course, they come to a beach, until they come onto the shore. And it's that action of the sh- shallowing um, water depth um, increases their speed as they come up the shelf. And that's when you see them breaking. And you do you do sometimes find that you get a group of um, big waves followed by a group of small waves. But there's no set number. Um, you know, it can be three waves in a row. It can be 20 waves in a row. Um, there's no fixed way. Despite what so I hear there's something called the surfer's rule of seven. But um, that's a myth, I'm afraid. <laughs> Uh, this question, uh, I'm going to throw it to you, John. This is from Nigel, who would like to know, first, what's the oldest fish? And as it's often said, crocodiles haven't really changed much since the Cretaceous. What is the ocean example? Mm. OK, so the I mean, oldest fish, if we think about lifespan of, of, of an individual fish, well, we now know that Greenland sharks uh, live for probably upwards of 270 years. Uh, and they can be aged because of, you know, things a bit like tree rings uh, that we can analyse to get an age on these things. Uh, so these are quite big sharks. They live in f- fairly deep conditions, but in cold conditions, their metabolism ticks over really slowly. They're scavengers, you know, they sort of gorge on a meal of a carcass and then might be quite some time before they feed again. And that allows them to, to keep going for a long time. So uh, when this paper was published that, that had this age for this shark, you know, that shark is older than and the United States of America. I mean, I think I just think that there's an animal that old in the ocean is phenomenal uh, to, for us to compare and actually, with. Sorry to jump in, John, but part of the way they dated it was the carbon isotopes. They did find bomb carbon. That was what calibrated mm-hmm. their scale. So it's a mixture of, there you go, Robin, two questions merging <laughs> together. You like that. Sorry, John, carry on. Uh, but then, you know, if we then think about, OK, the example of, you know, crocodiles have been around in evolutionary age for a long time. What are what are the examples in in the ocean? Uh, well, I mean, whole groups like the sharks as a group of fish, um, you know, we know are very ancient from 400 million years ago, um, that sort of thing as a, as, a, as a group as a whole. Um, and, you know, there are offshoots of other fish lineages that have been around for a long time. So look, you know, the coelacanth is a great example. People thought they were extinct and then found them in, in deep water cave systems. Uh, so we do have similar examples. But I think the other thing to bear in mind is that we're familiar with the mass extinction events that happened on land and saw off the dinosaurs and so on. But there have mass extinction events affect ocean life as well. So and there are also possibly some ocean specific extinction events to do with ocean circulation, cutting off oxygen, getting into the deep ocean. Um, so sometimes for some lineages and in some environments, things are quite young because there's been some sort of extinction uh, event. Uh, so it's a, yeah, it's a rich and complex place. Now, I've got one more question. We are officially out of time, but I'm pretty certain that Mel from Nottingham sent this question last time we did the ocean. So it's going to be very unfair if we don't ask it today. Uh, just for ask that question, just to remind you, by the way, saying about uh, Patreon support, if you are able to do it for the Cosmic Shambles Network. Uh, and a reminder that the uh, 24 hour show on the 12th of December, starting at midday on the 12th of December, we have a huge cast of that of uh, uh, astronauts and comedians and uh, musicians. I said Sophia Lispector, Tanita Tikram, Helen Sharman, Chris Hadfield, uh, Brian Cox, Jocelyn Bell Burnell, uh, uh, 44 others have been announced on top of that and uh, there are uh, at least 102 other guests on top of that uh, as well so find out more about that and if, as patreon at the moment we're also doing a 15% discount uh, if you subscribe for uh, a year which is uh, and it just helps us make loads of different stuff here is mel from nottingham's question uh, I believe that i read somewhere once that it takes a thousand years for a molecule of water to travel the length of the ocean conveyor belt what effects do El Nino and the Gulf Stream have on time spelt, spent in the belt, please? So oh, that's a fascinating because that is nothing that has ever crossed my mind. That idea of the travelling of a water molecule. Who would like, Stephanie, would you like to, to start? Yeah, it does take about a thousand years for the full ocean circulation to occur. So a parcel of water, uh, molecules, if you like, individual molecules um, at the surface, they do take about a thousand years. That if you tracked one particular molecule, it would probably have changed over time. But a parcel of water can travel through the whole 
ocean circulation it could take about a thousand years to go all the way around but things like um, the El Nino for example don't really affect those time scales because um, El Nino is a, an event that happens every five to seven years it affects the, the surface ocean of the Pacific. It's not interacting with that, um, what we call the meridional overturning circulation, which is this huge scale circulation of the whole conveyor belt. So I don't think there's an interaction there. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Mel, I'm glad we finally got your question. Question. I'm sorry you waited uh, probably well over a month to get to that answer. Uh, and I'm glad the answer was so succinct as well. Thanks very much, everyone, for watching. Thank you very much to uh, to John and Helen and Stephanie. Thank you very much to our producer, uh, Trent Burton, as usual. The first episode of our new series, An Uncanny Hour, uh, should be with you for Halloween, we hope, with Reese Shearsmith, Jeremy Dyson, uh, oh my goodness, Andy Nyman, uh, Carrie Thompson, Kayla Janese, Joanna Neary. It's all about a horror classic day of night we're going to be covering a lot of other things as well there'll be a new episode of science shambles on tuesday there'll be new book shambles on thursday and there'll probably be some other things in between and all around as well thanks very much for watching have a lovely week bye bye thank you very much for listening support us at patreon.com slash cosmic shambles check out all the other stuff over at cosmic shambles.com follow us on twitter at cosmic shambles or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.